Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As you know, this show is an increasingly old and venerable member of the Agora Podcast Network. This month, I am very happy indeed to bring your attention to a YouTube channel called Past Access by Pete Coleman. The channel is a travel channel in which Pete shares the history of various places he visits, as well as sharing practical information about the accessibility of the location for those traveling in a wheelchair. As you might imagine, there is not so much in the way of travel stuff happening right now, which has allowed Pete to return to a topic close to his heart, the closing years of World War I. He has just posted part two of his World War I revisited video, so it's a great time to check it out. I should also bring your attention to the fact that the ladies at Pontifex are celebrating 100 episodes with some extra special content, so go check out their feed as well. Links to both these great Agora shows are in the show notes. This month, as with many months, it is only fitting that we give honor and praise to those who have contributed materially to the health of the realm, namely this show. This month, we have several donors and patrons, and I should just say that if you have donated or patroned and your name has not come up yet, I am trying to keep this segment relatively short in length, so I'm spreading it out over episodes. So if you don't hear it this time, it'll be in the next one. Up first, we have Finn, who shall be known from henceforward as the Grand Interlocutor of the Royal Chatroom. Up next, we have Scott, who shall be known from henceforward as Sir Scott, Caller of the Royal Hours. Exciting job there, Scott. Congratulations. Up next, we have Renee, who shall be known from henceforward as Lady Renee, the official food taster for Earl Duncan the Fuzzy. He's a good boy. Up next, a noble whose name resounds throughout the realm, Lady Emily, the Night Drapier. Moving on to patrons, we have Jack who has requested to be known from henceforward as Jack, owner of mittens. Good choice there, Jack. Gets nippy. After Jack, we have Emmy, who shall be known from henceforward as Lady Emmy, Duchess of the smaller of the two royal baseball fields. And finally, we have Matteo, whose honorable deeds have earned him the position of Marquis Matteo, leader of the third of eight planned crusades against Luxembourg. Thank you to Scott, Renee, Emily, Jack, Emmy, and Matteo for your contributions to this realm. If you wish to contribute as a donor or patron to this show, head over to the website and go to the support page where you'll see links to get to uh, Patreon or PayPal or whatever. I should also say, and this is very exciting, that the shop page is back up and running and we've got a wide selection of fun stuff. 
And actually, if there's anything up there you want that you don't see, let me know. My wife and I have started a Shopify shop that's handling her stuff and my stuff. It took a long time to do, and I would really appreciate if people buy stuff because there is upkeep involved in having the store. But she's selling her stuff, so it's not like an emergency, but I I would appreciate it. In any case, there is this whole thing because her stuff is mostly custom. So a lot of what she has up in the store is like, here's an example of what you can get from Knit and Frog. And then my stuff's like, I don't know, just buy this T-shirt with a thing on it. But you don't have to just buy T-shirts. Because we're on Shopify, we now have mugs, we have shirts, we have shirts for kids, sweatshirts, all sorts of fun stuff. If you guys want a beanbag chair, someone ask me to get a beanbag chair, because I will put a beanbag chair up there with a Wittenberg to Westphalia logo. I want to do that real bad. But uh, go to the website, Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com. Link in the show notes as well. Go to the shop page and check out what we got. I will also say that the website has all sorts of fun stuff. I need to update that. I haven't updated it in like five years, but I I will. Anyway, thank you all for listening. It's been a year. It's been a year and a half, and it continues to be a year, but I don't know. We're getting there. Corners have been turned in my state's fight against COVID, and hopefully yours have as well. Things can still go bad, so don't slack up. I know, you know, if you haven't been vaccinated, be sure to follow all the uh, CDC regulations. If you haven't been vaccinated, get vaccinated. It's free. This is the only time our country is going to give you free health care. So just go. I mean, who even cares what it's for? It's free. Go. Anyway, let's talk about slavery. The other sources seem to be too numerous and disparate to warrant any attempt at a complete list. It will be enough to quote them and comment upon them as they are used. Besides, with material like this, what is the good at attempting any nomenclature for the sources? It could be no more than a list of random soundings. With very few of the documents could one venture to predict with any certainty that it would or would not provide useful information about the royal miracles. It is a matter of groping one's way, trusting to good luck or instinct, and wasting a great deal of time for a very meager return. If only all collections of texts were provided with an index, an index of subject matter! But it is scarcely necessary to point out that in many of these cases, this is totally lacking. These indispensable tools seem to grow even rarer as the documents become more recent in date. Their too frequent absence constitutes one of the most shocking deficiencies in our present method of publication. I feel perhaps a little sore on this point, for this vexatious omission has often made things extremely difficult for me. Moreover, even when there is an index, it often happens that its author has systematically omitted all mentions of the healing rites, judging such practices as futile and beneath the dignity of history. Many a time I have felt like a man placed in the middle of a large number of closed coffers, some of them containing gold and others containing nothing but stones, with no directions to help distinguish between the treasure and the pebbles. In other words, I make no claim at all to completeness. I can only hope that this book may encourage researchers to make new discoveries. Quote from The Royal Touch, Sacred Monarchy and Scrofula in England and France, written by Mark Bloch, translated by J.E. Anderson, republished by Routledge Revivals, and read by Brie of the Pontifax podcast. Check out that show, it's great. Everyone's right and no one is 
sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 75, Slavery in the Middle Ages Part 2, Teaching an Old Narrative New Tricks. Last time out, we started our look at slavery in the Middle Ages by trying to even define slavery, and as befits the Beckett-esque hellscape of this show, we found no satisfying analytical description. Rather, it was suggested by Dr. Alice Rio in her book Slavery After Rome that slavery is an identity status, and like all identity statuses, its qualitative and quantitative reality is more of a process than a state of being. Which is to say, slavery as a concept has not been unchanging across time and space, and any stable definition would either be entirely meaningless or just wrong. As a result, over the course of the next few episodes, we will be looking at the evidence for this position, framed around the ways statuses of unfreedom evolved over the course of the Middle Ages in response to changing economic and political and social conditions, the conflicting ideological needs of secular and church leaders, the needs of the slaves themselves, and, oh yeah, the post-apocalyptic security situation of the early Middle Ages. In today's episode, however, we will elaborate on a key part of the theory of this process by discussing Mark Bloch's description of the rise of serfdom, what he got right, what he got wrong, and most importantly of all, why he got those things right and wrong. We'll also briefly touch on some of the other models for discussing the evolution of serfdom into slavery, and then hopefully this will set us all up nicely for looking at the economics of unfreedom in the early Middle Ages. That'll be next time. I'm excited about all of this. I think you are all excited about all of this. And I know for certain that Andrew is excited to hear me talk about Mr. Mark Bloch for the next 20 to 60 minutes. So let's get going. Podcast footnote. Every time I do an episode with Mark Bloch in it, Andrew sends me an audio file with the proper way to pronounce his name. I'll, I'll get there. End podcast footnote. First off, I need to give a bit more of a detailed summary of Mark Bloch's narrative of the evolution of slavery into serfdom, along with a description of some of the evidence that he had at his disposal to back up his narrative. Apologies, I know this is like the fifth time you're hearing this particular story, but it is important. So, to restate the basic broad strokes of the issue from last episode, during the Roman Empire, there was large-scale slavery, and also large-scale individual landholding by farmers. By the 1200s, at the end of the early Middle Ages, individual landholding by farmers was extremely rare in most of Western Europe, with land ownership mostly in the hands of large noble families and worked by peasant villages who had their own separate land rights system. In those villages, there was an admixture of free peasants and serfs, though their lived reality was often basically identical. At the time that Mark Bloch got his doctorate in the early 1920s, there was something of an ongoing debate about what happened in between. Most of the big-name historians of the generation before Mark Bloch would generally say that there was not enough evidence of the era to comment on the process as it related to serfs, and thus focused on the actions of the kings and nobles at the expense of the social and economic forces affecting the poor. Bloch and many in his generation, I should say, disagreed, and Bloch published a book explaining the process of this social evolution a few years after getting his degree, and basically spent the entire rest of his career tinkering with the narrative he had laid out. I'm going to spend the rest of this episode in a similar pursuit. The first piece of evidence used by Bloch to explain this process 
and possibly the easiest to wrap our heads around, is etymological. While etymology is not considered quite as solid a scientific proof today as it was in the mid-20th century, a time when it was kind of the new hotness, the evidence here is so straightforward and basic to the discipline that it really demands explanation by any narrative on slavery and serfdom. To wit, the medieval French word serf, which shows up in records in the 1200s and had related variations across much of Christian Europe, is very obviously cognate with the Latin word servi, which is to say, due to a fairly well-documented process by which the way people in France changed the way they pronounced certain consonants between the late Roman Empire and the rise of written French records, the we, vi sound in servi, moved to an f sound in the medieval French word serf. So servi, serf. While on the written page they might not seem that related, if you say the word to yourself and pay attention to what's happening with your tongue and your lips, you can see how the change of a slight position in the tongue and everything made one word just sort of slide into the other over a couple of centuries. Now the important thing here is that this shift didn't just apply to the words serwi and surf. It happened broadly across the entire language. So every word with a, a W sound, which is written with a V, but every word in Latin with a W became an F. So the etymological connection between the words is, is fairly straightforward and easy to understand. What makes this meaningful is that there was also a shift in meaning during this time. As we discussed last time out, the word serwi, which implied a Roman legal concept of total unfreedom, was different in very important ways from the word serf. So, at the same time that the incidental trait of pronunciation changed, the deeper meaning within the society changed as well. So much so that when true legal unfreedom returned to the French legal system, a new word had to be imported into the language, namely the word esclave. That in itself is a pretty important piece of evidence, but that's just France. The real kicker here is that a similar thing happened in words in basically all the European languages, including non-romantic languages like English and Norse. The most straightforward example may be in English, where via Norman French, the word serwi came to the language and ultimately became the word servant. So that's just a different version of what happened in French, but many Germanic and Norse languages had a word similar to thrall that implied an unfree status. And today, these older words have evolved into something like the modern word earn in English. That's a fairly complicated set of vowel changes and consonant changes, but it went from thrall to earn. And again, similar things happened in Spanish and Italian, etc. So all across this entire European cultural space, words related to total unfreedom seem to have gradually evolved, first to signify less total kinds of domination, like serf, and then to the point where, in most modern languages, these words just imply a kind of honorable employment. And finally, this evolution happened in such a way that when full legal unfreedom returned to this cult European cultural space, a new word was needed to distinguish between the newer, more mild forms of unfreedom and the traditional Roman kind of total domination unfreedom. In most cases, this word is etymologically related to Slav in Western European languages. Naturally, the Slavic languages of Europe did not go that particular route, and we can forgive them for that. While an etymologist might quibble with some of the details of what I just said, as I understand it, this is all essentially accepted as, as close to fact as you can get with anything in history. And I've never run into anyone who had a different interpretation of the etymological evidence, at least in terms of the big picture narrative I just conveyed. At the time of Mark Bloch's work, as I said, etymological evidence was kind of a new hotness. 
Bloch then went one step further and drew the following conclusion from the etymological evidence. Serfdom was not a new thing invented from whole cloth in the Middle Ages and forced on peasants by the nobility. The evolution of the word indicated that similarly there had been an evolution in status in the society in the background during that time. Which is to say there was an evolution in earlier concepts of slavery from the Roman period. So it wasn't a new thing imposed on people. The same people and their descendants just gradually changed in status over time. Force was undoubtedly used at some level, because we are talking about slavery, but it was an evolution from earlier legal concepts. This narrative ended up being a major cornerstone of his arguments, and it remains a point that underpins much of our modern understanding of narratives of this period today. For more on the evidence underpinning this process, please do check out the History of English podcast by Kevin Stroud and Words for Granted by Ray Belli. They are friends of the show, and their work in this area is not exactly focused on the historical interpretations of the process, but on the mechanics of etymological change itself. So if you want to understand why etymologists and historians are so sure about their understanding of this, check out those shows. Also, they're great guys, and their shows are wonderful. So, end podcast footnote. With the basic hypothesis formulated on this etymological evidence, Bach then sought ways to find confirmation of this hypothesis from written evidence, ideally in terms of evidence that would help describe in more detail what happened during this period to the peasants of Europe. Since he already knew that something happened, what was the process? What happened and what were the changes that caused it? The next bits of really important evidence for Bloch are in the form of legal records from the 1200s to 1300s. In those records, it's clear that, although free peasants and serfs live in nearly identical conditions, a distinction is made and the peasants are fairly desperate to maintain or attain a free status. In these records, it's clear that, although free peasants and serfs live in nearly identical conditions, a distinction is made legally and the serfs and the peasants are fairly desperate to make sure that they land on the free side of the equation. Bloch somewhat paternalistically attributed this to a quaint peasant obsession with a tradition which, luckily for us, preserves evidence of the ultimate fate of free and peasant farmers in the early Middle Ages. We're going to come back to that paternalism later on. Some of it may have been justified, most of it probably wasn't. But at this point, Bloch had already made such a compelling case that his essential narrative point is made, basically even up to today. In the Roman Empire, there were a lot of slaves. In the High Middle Ages, there were a whole lot of serfs. And you'll find very few people these days who will tell you that the later situation of serfdom wasn't in some way or another an outgrowth of Roman slavery. While the free peasants were the descendants, in one way or another, of the legal status of the free Roman farmers and the Germanic invaders who joined them. The question is how and when the status of the slaves improved to become like that of the serfs. And the status of supposedly free farmers decayed to the point where they lived their lives restricted to work on someone else's manor as rural peasants in the Middle Ages. In describing this process, Bloch tried to use sequential evidence from the late Roman Empire forward, connecting the eventual status of the serfs and free peasants, which was well documented via later evidence, with some sort of line from the Roman past. Essentially, he was working towards the middle from both the future and the past. This kind of teleological process was very popular at the time, is somewhat unpopular now, but is not inherently wrong if you know what you're getting. His narrative was the one we've covered in the past, of the two classes being gradually squished together by the events of the time and the decisions of the leaders of the empire and local nobility. 
Late Roman laws, influenced by both Christian morality and the increasing scarcity of new slaves, began to legally circumscribe the treatment of slaves by their masters. On the other hand, the political economy of the time was making it harder and harder for the empire to raise resources needed to maintain itself. The burden ultimately fell hardest on the free farmers, and laws were passed to place this resource entirely at the service of the state and reduce their ability to get out of it. Free farmers were restricted to their land, and children were forced to take up the job of their parents. These laws, passed initially by Diocletian and maintained in one form or another by Constantine and his successors, seem to suggest a situation like that endured by the medieval peasantry, where movement was severely restricted, taxes and dues are high, and the poor have extremely limited rights. All that you need is for state power to be placed in the hands of local leaders, and voila, a class of free peasants subjected to dominion by local lords. But actually, here is where things get complicated, as Bloch himself recognized. Because in the High Middle Ages it was the serfs, who ought to be the descendants of slaves, whose movements were most restricted. The free peasants were not encouraged to move around, but it wasn't necessarily banned in the same way. But these laws of Diocletian were aimed at the free Roman farmers, not the slaves, whose movements were the business of their owners. So this evidence shows the decline in the status of free farmers, but it's not really a smoking gun. And a whole lot happened between Constantine and the end of the early Middle Ages. The trick at this point for Bloch's narrative is finding some sort of missing link or links, showing a situation where free peasants were herded onto manors and serfs were granted a set of rights and duties more like those they lived under in the Middle Ages. In terms of free peasants, there are three types of evidence that were available to Bloch. There was a mass of evidence available to Bloch via the church, about which more later, showing various free peasants agreeing to terms of service with lords in return for protection or services. Law suggests that many of these agreements, though not all, involved some kind of compulsion. Such documentation shows somewhat how free peasants generally ended up where they did at the end of this process, but it doesn't show how the legal mechanisms evolved to allow for such arrangements. After all, as we will address in a bit in this episode, the enslavement of free citizens in the Roman Empire was very, very naughty. Tenancy agreements were one option, with their origins in the late empire, though there are gaps in the records and tenancy was never popular in northern Europe, and in any case they were never hereditary. For some sort of hereditary status, he pointed strongly to the institution of the colony as a possible origin of the situation. Colony had a long history as a general category in the empire, as places where ex-Roman soldiers were given land by their former generals and settled. But in the late empire, it became apparently a state policy that this land started to come with strings attached. Notably, the soldiers and their families were not really allowed to leave the colony, and they were expected to send their children into military service, amongst other duties. The narrative from there was that the empire sprinkled colony all over their territory, and then eventually the nobles who inherited the empire imposed those same legal restrictions and duties on everyone. And to be sure, we have documentation well into the Middle Ages of how these places continued to persist. A reinforcing piece of other evidence came from some of the laws of Charlemagne. We have a dozen or so documents relating to so-called gynaceums, which seems to have been part of attempts by Charlemagne on his personal estates to set up some kind of self-sufficient semi-industrial rural commune complete with workshops full of single women doing manufacturing tasks while the men of the area worked at farming. The young women were supposed to live under strict, morally regulated conditions. And I'm actually somewhat reminded of the early factory systems in New England, like the Waltham system and the Pawtucket system. 
sort of similar concepts. Of course, many of the letters that we have that survive relate to situations where things didn't quite go as planned, usually because the nobles overseeing these gynoseums were abusing the women. What's interesting about these letters is that the letters make clear that abusing the women was definitely not on because these were free women. They were not slaves and therefore could not be abused in this way. What that tells us is that we have free women here being herded into institutional rural settings commanded by local nobles who were abusing them and taking rights from them. Suggestive. Finally, after Charlemagne's death and during the civil wars that ultimately followed, the chronicles are full of accounts where various lords and kings, while raiding each other's lands, are described as stealing the common people or taking people belonging to certain churches. In some instances, they are described being resettled in other places. Between these three examples and a few others, Bloch suggests we can see a sketch of a process by which free peasants were being herded, sometimes physically herded, onto manorial estates in which the lord heavily invested in infrastructure in order to allow the state to be largely self-sufficient, and then the lord and his small army to live off the agricultural surplus created by technically free peasants. We'll get to whether or not that picture holds up in a moment. But for now, let's turn our attention to the slaves. For the slaves and serfs, Bloch has a different narrative. But to explain that, I actually am going to need to take a lengthy aside here and explain an underlying concept, that of the freedmen. Podcast footnote, freedmen in this case is going to be a gender-neutral term, just to be clear. So we're talking about people of both genders, despite the inclusion of the men in the word. End podcast footnote. Again, we may have discussed this a bit before, or maybe I've just come so close to talking about it multiple times that I'm fooling myself, but I think we really do need a full elaboration of the concepts to understand a bit where Bloch was right and wrong, and how this feeds into what happened in the early Middle Ages with slavery. Dr. Rio has a really great discussion of the ways this worked in her book, a freedman was a former slave who'd been granted freedom by their owner. In the Roman law of the Republic and the height of the empire, this was a relatively simple transaction. These individuals were freed in a legal process, at which point they had all the rights and responsibilities of a Roman citizen, with two caveats. First, they could be re-enslaved, but only for, like, really serious crimes. Second, it was understood that they owed gratitude towards their former masters. What gratitude means in this context and whether they could be re-enslaved for a lack of gratitude was not spelled out. It was just recognized that in a legal context, that was one of the things that you should expect. They should be grateful. Already this is getting a little complicated, but to continue, we're actually going to need to delve deeper into some of the most foundational Roman legal concepts that existed. In Rome and Athens, the two main fonts of legal theory in the ancient world, They'd both ended up actually developing their constitutions early on, partly as a result of uprisings by poor citizens who were upset at the practice of debt slavery, which is to say, poor citizens were being enslaved by rich citizens. In Athens, this resulted in a period of dictatorship, before ultimately their famous democratic system arose, which consciously removed political power from rich citizens. Rome never got to that horrifying extreme, but this same conflict in Rome led to several civil wars, riots, strikes, and demonstrations. The end result was initially the tribunate, then the dictatorships of Sulla and Marius, and ultimately the rise of the imperial system itself. 
But suffice it to say that in both legal systems, the enslavement of citizens for debt was banned fairly early. And ultimately, one of the main goals of their constitution was explicitly the protection of poor citizens from enslavement by rich ones. Which is not to say that they were against slavery. Good golly, no. They just didn't want citizens to be enslaved. This was justified by people like Aristotle, amongst others, who argued that slaves were inherently morally incapable of being free. You could tell because they were slaves. This wasn't really a genetic thing, per se, genetics being a concept that was several thousand years in the future, but rather it was felt that a faulty upbringing or some other similar defect had made these individuals morally faulty. Of course, the constitutions of Athens and Rome will insist here that such a moral defect could never be the case for free-born citizens of their cities. By simple virtue of being Athenian or Roman, they had grown up in a context where they had a habit of behaving as responsible free citizens. Slavery was for other people, like those filthy people for Megara. Rome's big contribution to this discussion was the idea that citizenship was a status that could be granted. Even if they didn't live in the city and were not descended from Roman citizens, they could be granted Roman citizenship. With a grant came some responsibilities, but also protections. Obviously, this is fairly important tangentially to the legal concept of a freedman. With this cultural background, the creation of a freedman from a Roman perspective was essentially that the slave had proven to their master that they had overcome their earlier moral handicap and had earned the right to be considered a Roman citizen. As a result, once they were granted recognition by their owner as a citizen, they were no longer subject to being a slave. And under Roman law, and this was very important and was re stated repeatedly, there were only two statuses. A person could be free and a citizen, or a person could be a slave. There was no in-between. There were foreigners who weren't citizens yet, and they could be enslaved, but that's kind of a different thing. Within the Roman Empire, you have citizens and you have slaves, and that's it. And so theoretically... The purpose of freeing a slave was that the master had recognized the moral quality of their slave. There's a whole paternalistic thing in there about civilizing the slaves as being part of the duty of a master. Yeah, that one goes, that little gem goes way back. Way back. But anyway, in practice, there were obviously more prosaic reasons for having slaves, but also for freeing them. And those prosaic reasons were expressed in legal changes in the late Roman Empire. But let's talk about those reasons first. First of all, wealthy Romans maintained their political status and power through systems of patronage and family alliances. We've talked about this before. A freedman who was able to prosper out in the world would, of course, be grateful to the person who'd freed them and recognized their moral quality, and would, of course, immediately become a key part in the patronage network. Patronage, by its nature, has legal implications, but can't be enforced by the legal system, at least not directly. It's built on bonds of trust and sentiment, as well as profit motive. So the former owner has to trust the freedmen to hold up their end of the bargain and be grateful, but that's part of the risk of the transaction. If they don't really follow through to the way that you'd want and, you know, take off, they're a free citizen. That's it. Over time, as more uses for slaves developed in the increasingly complex Roman economy, more uses for freedmen also developed. They could be used to start essentially franchise businesses in different ports and other similar situations where it was useful to have someone in your debt 
but where a slave would be impractical due to their legal status. With money so increasingly involved in these transactions, later Roman patricians gradually put pressure on the law to change, and change it did. The law gradually moved in the direction of allowing re-enslavement of freedom for ingratitude, which is to say that for not honoring their end of the business arrangements proposed by their patrons, they could be thrown back into chains. So even though the freedmen was supposedly free and Roman citizens, they had sort of become a third status within the free versus slave dichotomy of Roman legal theory. They sort of had training wheels on their freedom. Though this status would not affect their children, their children were expected to be part of the patronage network, sort of like old-style freedmen. Okay, I think that's enough about the background of Friedman to get us going. The thing that's important is that it seems like there was a certain trajectory here, where over the course of the Roman Empire, they started circumscribing the rights of Friedman more and more, and that continued up into the breakup of the empire. For Bloch, this suggested a potential source of the later serfs. If the legal status of Friedman continued to be circumscribed, and he could find evidence of large-scale manumissions of slaves, that would be solid evidence showing how the mass-scale slavery of the Roman Empire became the mass-scale serfdom of the 1200s. The problem Bloch had was sources. There are records of mass manumissions from the imperial era, but this decreased as the empire waned and the practice was actually banned at certain points. In the early medieval period, there was very little state-sponsored record-keeping, many aristocrats were illiterate, in any way, much material from this era would not have been copied and preserved, since it would have seemed really boring to most people, just, you know, estate records and stuff like that. Any records that survived that may have been destroyed in the French Revolution. But there was one institution that had a need to manage large amounts of property, whose members were almost all literate, and which had continuity in most places for centuries. The church. And so Bloch perused the records of bishops, parish churches, or most of all, monasteries and convents. Bloch observed that this limitation in the sources may have introduced a bias, but he worked with what he had. What he had were records that, from Bloch's point of view, presented something of a pattern. In many places, wealthy aristocrats would leave huge tracts of land to the church in their wills. These wills often stipulated that the slaves on these lands should be freed in some way, shape, or form for the good of the master's souls. They often made this new free status conditional on the new freedmen performing some sort of service at the church in memory of the landlord. In some cases, this duty was inherited by the freedmen's descendants. There are also many instances of the descendants of the deceased person attempting to reimpose services on freed individuals. Aha! Here it is, our missing link. The rise of Christian ideology made the holding of slaves a bad thing, so the landlords felt the need to free slaves at death to help them get into heaven but then the people left behind still needed the land worked. Unlike in the Roman legal system, these new deals show landlords exacting specific continuing duties from freedmen on pain of re-enslavement, and these duties could be inherited. Ipso facto, a path was created for landlords to technically free slaves, while their status would still require service in practice. For Bloch, these church records were his link to the Roman past. Let's pause for a moment to summarize Bloch's hypothesis and his evidence. Once again, in the Roman era, there were free people and slaves. There were also freedmen who had some acknowledged duties to their patrons, but were, in general, expected to be treated as citizens. Bloch pointed to the institution of the Colonie and the Gynoseum as examples of the way something like a tenancy agreement could have become a hereditary permanent status that could be imposed on free citizens. 
For the slaves, Bloch pointed to church documents which showed that a cultural shift had occurred. Slavery was seen as a bad thing to do to a person, and so the landlords freed their slaves. It, it was a bad thing, but they recognized it. But they still needed workers on their land, so arrangements were created where the freedmen had duties to work on their land some portion of the year, and the status eventually became hereditary, as seen in some church documents. This all sounds very convincing, and as I have said, some of the broad strokes remain very relevant. But as you might expect, an awful lot has changed since the 1920s in terms of research techniques and technology. Without going back over that episode where I waxed poetical about database searches and archival scanning projects, there's a lot of evidence available to modern historians that Bloch did not have access to because no one knew it existed, or no one thought to look in it for evidence about serfdom, or people knew it existed but had not republished it and Bloch wasn't able to travel to read it himself. Let me just sort of explain what I mean. At the time, there may have been a document that said all sorts of interesting things about serfdom, but it wasn't in Paris. It was in Italy or something. And actually, no one knew that they had it. It was just in a box labeled documents or something like that. Or even if they had, they knew that that document existed, maybe the stuff that's interesting in there about slaves and serfdom is buried in the middle of a poem about traveling or something like that. There's all these ways that these things can get lost within a sea of data. That's something we sort of intuitively get now, but it was very, it was even an issue then. And to a large extent, a lot of the discoveries and new evidence that we uncover every year isn't because like we find some attic full of old documents or something. It's that documents we already knew we had are finally digitized and indexed or translated into a modern language or stuff like that. What all this modern research has done, in many ways, is to systematically unpick all these specific pieces of evidence Bloch thought he had, and which he used as his missing links in the records, to explain the process of transition from slavery and freedom to serfdom and peasantry. There's many ways this happened, and I'm obviously summarizing to fit this all in one episode, but I'd like to go over some of the main pieces of evidence in turn. In the case of the Colony and the Gynoseum, these cases turned out to be really well-documented one-offs. They're essentially dead ends. In the case of the Colony, this concept never really caught on outside a few examples in northern Italy. While those examples in northern Italy did persist well into the Middle Ages and were well-documented, they didn't happen anywhere else. One suspects that the soldiers in the army who were being offered Colony as their retirement package may have done some grumbling and sword-shaking about the idea of being imprisoned there with, along with their, all their descendants for all time. Similarly, the Gynoseum, as described by Charlemagne, is not attested as being tried by anyone else other than Charlemagne. One theory as to what happened is that the only way we know about this is letters talking about the abuse of the women in these institutions. Well, if you are a family with a daughter and you are hearing about this interesting industrial project that Charlemagne's working on, and then you hear about how all the girls who go there are getting abused by the nobles in charge, you're not going to send your daughter there. <laughs> Obviously. In a society that was as reputation and sex-obsessed as that of the early Middle Ages, obviously that issue is magnified several fold, and so it seems likely that the gynoseum just kind of fell apart through lack of participation. Another possible alternative is that 
no one other than Charlemagne really had the resources to fully realize this vision of estate management, which was extremely capital-intensive and would likely have produced large quantities of goods which the consumer and export markets of the time may not have been set up to absorb. I think we talked about something similar in earlier episodes with monastic experimentation. They, they tried to do similar things where they would have sort of industrial processes happening within the monastic communities. They ultimately gave up on that. And part of that was an ideological shift towards prayer as the main activity of the monks. But it seems a similar part of it was just the bad economics of the whole thing. This issue happened in a number of places in, in Bloch's work. The entire idea of the medieval manor as a pure form, which he describes, seems to have only existed on a few estates in the Loire Valley, from where he got many of his primary sources. Though it is understood that even Bloch always understood that what he was describing was an idealized type with lots of variations in different places across the continent. A larger kind of methodological problem is pointed to by Rio in terms of Bloch's reliance on church records for his model of manumission-based serfdom. The church institutions that maintained the records in question were the direct beneficiaries of the donations recorded. They also had a direct interest in getting the proceeds of the work done by the people who lived on and worked that land, an interest that would be well served by having records of manumissions that ended up putting people in positions where they still owed service. That was a big word salad, so let me put this another way. The church is not a normal lord that happens to take particularly good records. As an institution, the church has particular needs and incentives that differentiated them from normal landlords. And this created a bias in the records because they wanted a certain kind of record to be kept. For example, the church is constantly having to defend itself from claims on land by secular lords who are militarily stronger than the church so it relied on stable laws to defend its claims, something that was also an ideological bias within the doctrine of the time. The flip side of this reliance on law was that the church couldn't rely on pure force to ensure that people worked the church's land, something again reinforced by the church's ideological, professional, and lack of military commitments. So the church is going to tend to want an arrangement where it can use written evidence to compel people to produce income for it. Because the church is an institution that persists beyond the life of any one person, the church wants the income to persist effectively forever. Finally, while we see the church is not entirely opposed to slavery, it does have some loose ideological commitments about slavery not being the best thing you can do to someone, and so the church has some ideological reasons why it might not want to own a massive slave plantation, at least on paper. A situation where the peasants semi-voluntarily work for a few days per week with the proceeds of that work benefiting an absentee landlord and enforcement overseen by secular authorities appointed by the absentee landlord is a situation uniquely suited to the needs of the church. While this situation would have benefits for any landlord who wanted to be an absentee, a different landlord with different needs from the church might have come up with a different system than the system that Bloch found in church records. So while Bloch's interpretation of church records was not necessarily wrong, it lacked a certain sense of context. For one thing, in many cases, the people involved in these documents were already doing serf-like work as slaves, a subject we will return to when we discuss the economics of slavery, but which also suggests that the transition from slave to serf wasn't an act of legal creativity imposed on freedmen, but more a realignment of terminology to reflect something that was already happening. Maybe. Second, in many cases, the work being asked of the newly freed persons used as evidence by Bloch is 
trivial might be the right word. So in one of the cases cited by Dr. Rio, the requirement for work that was being imposed on this freedman and their descendants for all time was that the individual involved would bring a candle, one candle for each person, to the tomb of the person who freed them. They were then required to clean out the tomb, give it a good sweep, <laughs> dust it and stuff, light the candle, say some prayers for their dead patron's soul, and that's it. They could just head home at that point. In other cases, the freed people had to perform a handful of days of service to the church that owned the land they lived on each year. And I'm not being hyperbolic. I mean like five days in a year. In some cases, it was even stipulated that the church give them a good meal in return on those five days, which probably isn't worth it. Now, it's worth remembering that candles weren't cheap in the early Middle Ages, and a full day of work was not inconsiderable to a potentially starving medieval peasant. But even in the context of the medieval economy, this is maybe a annoyance and not like a seriously crippling level of taxation. There are other cases where people had to perform more serious services, but in many cases, such individuals occupied a status that did not neatly line up with Roman precedents. For example, in Ireland, the word that we might most correctly translate as freedmen had something like five different degrees of severity, all of which carried different levels of expectation. While this might be chalked up to Ireland's non-Roman past, the Italian legal system also may have had three or so different named identity statuses that fell somewhere between a slave and a genuinely free citizen, some of which were considered a kind of slavery, and some of which were considered a kind of freedman status, but with heavy burdens. So to summarize this summary, Bloch's general framework remains relevant and important to modern students of history in the sense that we are studying the evolution of Roman concepts of slavery and citizenship and how they evolved into serfdom in the general context of social collapse and Germanic invasion. The specifics of the mechanisms by which this process happened, not to mention the timing, which I haven't even gotten into, has proven to be basically incorrect by the discovery of new evidence. Some pieces of evidence turned out to be well-documented one-offs, while others involved systematic bias in the evidence. Or possibly it wasn't entirely wrong, but it also wasn't complete. The task of replacing or maybe supplementing Bloch's narrative with something new will be the work of the next few episodes, but in closing today, I just want to quickly mention the process by which Bloch's larger hypothesis was challenged, elaborated, and changed over the years to reach the current status. Yes, historiography. Isn't it great? To start with, it's worth saying that Bloch did not begin his work in a vacuum. As we discussed in one of the episodes on the economy, there was an ongoing debate in the generation immediately before Bloch between Roman maximalists and the Roman minimalists. The maximalists said that Roman institutions had persisted well into the Middle Ages, and in fact they had been converted into medieval institutions just off-screen while no one was looking in the 1100s, right before everyone started writing things down again. The minimalists said that all Roman institutions had been so thoroughly trashed by the fall of the empire that it was inconceivable that any Roman institution could have survived. As such, the medieval institutions were basically created from whole cloth. This discussion was much wider than the problem of slaves and serfs, but the implication here would be that the maximalists thought serfdom was invented in the years between 1000 and 1200, while the minimalists thought serfdom popped into existence the Tuesday after Odoacer sent the imperial regalia to Constantinople in 476. Bloch sensibly rejected both hypotheses and spelled out the more gradual process we've already discussed today. And again, it is generally considered that that broad outline is closer to reality than any of the extremes mentioned before. 
The process of editing Bloch's early system began while he was still alive, as he would regularly publish out articles in his various journals that served to tweak and correct his ideas. After his death, and after the war, this process expanded as his collaborators and colleagues in the analysis school picked up his work. Most early debates ended up reopening the debates between the maximalists and the minimalists, albeit that the strict minimalists were fairly well put to bed. Few historians argue for serfdom arising before 700 these days. Still, a transition happening between 700 and 1100 gives you enough material in arguing over degrees of timing to keep anyone on a tenure track. Other major topics of discussion evolved from there. Was the process of transition a long one of slow incremental change, or was it relatively sudden? Was this process caused primarily by economic changes, by dynastic policy, or was it the result of competition between lords? Many of the gray spots have been gradually filled in by these discussions, which have been productive to greater and lesser degrees. A major person Dr. Rio felt compelled to mention is our old friend Michael McCormick. This makes me feel good, as it is evidence that I am picking the right sources for the show and not getting all enthusiastic about stuff real historians consider random garbage. In any case, you will recall that McCormick suggested that slave trading was a fairly huge part of the economy of the early Middle Ages, with the accompanying suggestion that the Frankish Empire was built on mass-scale enslavement of the people they conquered, but that domestic slavery was not profitable due to the competitive advantage of selling slaves in the South. Dr. Rio suggests the academic establishment is not entirely convinced by Dr. McCormick's conception of the Franks as a slaving society, for reasons that we will discuss more next episode on the economics of slavery. But the larger contributions of his work have served to reopen the important economic aspects of the medieval slavery conversation and provided a lot of really valuable material given the new methods he employed. And for the purpose of this show, that brings us up to Dr. Rio's book in the present. Dr. Rio suggests that in ways that varied from time and place and from place to place, the institution of slavery sort of became unhitched from Roman precedents. Nonetheless, these Roman precedents remained the sort of cultural and legal starting point for a more fluid evolutionary process. Rio describes a huge variety of different ways slavery was used by slaves and slave owners to attain their various goals, setting up essentially dozens of different evolutionary processes of the concept. Ultimately, most of these experiments did not work out for a variety of reasons, and the recodification of the legal system in the 1200s kind of narrowed the concept of serfdom back down to a systemized theoretical concept that was largely based on the concepts that Bloch outlined using church sources, which now suited very well the needs of large-scale absentee landlords of the secular aristocracy, creating the perception that serfdom was only one thing when in fact it had been many things before. But that is all a topic for later episodes of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. For today, I'm going to skip my usual wrap-up, as I feel like I did three or four summaries over the course of the episode, and I hope that was sufficient. One thing, though, before I go, and that regards Andrew, my editor. Andrew is an excellent editor, and has a degree in history, and is frankly hilarious to know and work with. That last episode would have been only half as good without his work. Unfortunately, his post-college plans really took a hit from COVID, so if anyone has any audio editing work for him, get in touch. His rates are reasonable, and I can attest to the quality. If there are times when the audio in this show is less than stellar, I assure you it's because I consistently ignore his advice about recording best practices 
And I'm generally just kind of the history podcast version of Ed Wood in terms of my habit of doing one take and moving on. I am also still using the $60 USB mic I started with seven years ago, and I'm recording in a basement studio built from stapling bits of drawer liner to an unpainted ceiling. Somehow, from the steaming pile of audio garbage I send him every month, a listenable final product is produced, and I actually even get people who compliment my audio quality, which is weird. Basically, the man is a saint and extremely talented, and you should all hire him for lots of money. With that said, thanks so much for listening, and tune in to next month's episode when we will be discussing the economics of medieval slavery. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.